Sullivan has story in the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to finish his dissertation, raise a small child, uh, maybe get a job, and survive quarantine. Um, today, I'm very happy to, to be joined by Michael Schupner, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Maine Farmington, and we'll be talking about his new uh, his old book, Moral Contagion, Black Atlantic Sailors, Citizenship and Diplomacy in Antebellum America, that is newly out in paperback just last week at a very reasonable price. So if you're curious about the book, I encourage you to press pause and navigate over to your bookshop of choice and buy the book from there. You can also find a link to the book at the website for this podcast, historian.live. Welcome to the show, Michael. How's it going? It's going well, Brendan. Thank you for having me. Um, so, Michael, uh, your 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 book is 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 a really interesting and taught me a, a ton of stuff about the South and in, in, in uh, before the Civil War, um, and it's it's just a completely different view of the South than the one that I have in my head. Like when I imagine the South, it's kind of like the South before the war. It's kind of like cotton plantations, slavery. Uh, closed off from the world, like very, very like settled in place. But, but in your book, you present the South as, as, as like something that's deeply connected, not only with the North of America, but with like Britain, with the Caribbean, with, with some, with like all of these places linked by the Atlantic Ocean. So tell me about the South in the Atlantic world in this, in this time. Sure. So I, I think um, one of the reasons that this sort of common conception of the South sort of emerges is, one, it's nomenclature, right? That the word antebellum means before the war. And so I think we tend to look at the South through the lens of the Civil War. And, and so we, so I think, inherently think about the South in strictly in this relationship to the North, the Confederacy versus uh, the Union. I think that's one reason that we get this sort of misconception of the South. And the other one, of course, is in popular culture, right? I mean, uh, I, as a very young boy, I remember watching sort of Gone with the Wind, um, and, and that's sort of the cotton plantation, the, you know, the plantation complex as being sort of the, the heart of the South. Um, but, you know, that's one part of the South, right? And that's one way to think about the South. Um, but the, the, the central geographic sort of scope of my study is in, is in the urban South. Uh, and, and again, it's not urban like you would think of in terms of like New York or Philadelphia, but places like New Orleans and Charleston and Savannah, these have um, these have you know large urban centers. They are you know interposed for for commerce, for trade. They're exchanging ideas, and they are not simply interacting with the north. They're interacting with the entire Atlantic world. And, uh, what does what does entrepot mean? It's it, is it a port? Is an entrepot port? Are these are these cities like you know? I'm just imagining like you know early modern dockyards or something. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yes, they're uh, at least what I was looking at were largely port cities. So you know from Wilmington, uh, I don't really look at Baltimore as much because uh, Maryland does not enact one of these uh, laws against black sailors. Uh, but from North Carolina, uh, so Wilmington uh, down to Charleston, uh, around the the keys to you know. You know, to, to New Orleans, uh, all the way to, to what is now Galveston. These port cities are all over the South. They're in constant uh, interaction um, with the Caribbean, especially those Gulf states, um, and and Great Britain in particular for for the Southern states. I mean, uh, cotton is the lifeblood uh, for a long while of of British textile manufacturing, and, and that's a central piece of what's going on in the book. Is that we need to think of the South not just simply in its relationship to the North, uh, but its relationship to uh, a lot of other places uh, as well. 
And so what would these ports look like? Like, I'm, I, would there be like, I, the way that you kind of, that, that, that I have it in my head is just like Americans everywhere, but, but was it more cosmopolitan in these port cities? Well, I think it depends on where you're at, right? Because, you know, you know, Mobile and, and New Orleans, even though they're geographically pretty close, well, they were radically different in 1850. I mean, Mobile is uh, a spattering, uh, uh, you know, of ox and wharves and a fairly small downtown. And New Orleans is a bustling cosmopolitan city. Um, so, so it kind of depends on which one you're looking at. Um, but certainly New Orleans and Charleston, you know, you have uh, all sorts of different international currencies. You have all sorts of international products. You have people speaking, you know, lots of different languages. Uh, and, and if you just look at the Charleston newspapers, to give you an example, uh, in the 18-teens and 1820s, you can look at what's being uh, sold, what's being marketed, and you can see the extensive sort of reach of these of these southern port cities based on just the material culture of the things coming in. Like what? Like what sort of things were they getting that, that that can show us their 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 reach? In my head, it's like British tea sure, cups. Yeah. So there's manufactured <laughs> goods, obviously, from the British Empire. There's Madeira wine. There's Spanish cheeses. There's um, you know, uh, Caribbean exports, um, so sugar, um, you know, it, it all, it, it, in things that you would normally see in a, in a place like Philadelphia or New York, you, you're seeing the same sort of uh, sort of material goods being sold in the South as well. Mm-hmm. And let's let's just before we, we, we talk a little more about exactly what's happening here, let's let's nail down the material base. What's the South like? How are people making money? What's important about the South? I know that it's cotton. But where's that cotton going and what other things are people buying and selling to make these these port cities alive? Well, the 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 most important thing is cotton uh, and everything else seems to be in support of the cotton trade or offshoots of the cotton trade. Uh, the overwhelming number of exports coming out of this or the overwhelming export coming out of the south is cotton. And whether that's Charleston or, or, or New Orleans or in some of the smaller ports, uh, cotton is I mean, cotton is king, to paraphrase uh, James Henry Hammond, which I don't like very often. Uh, but he's right in this regard. Um, so um, if you look at sort of, sort of raw exports, the, the amount of the, the number of bales of cotton coming out of the southeastern United States um, is simply staggering. It's more than half of all exports of the United States, north and south, uh, by 1860. And so a good chunk of American wealth is being accumulated through, uh, through this cotton export. And where's the cotton going? Um, that's a great question. So some of it is going to the northern United States. Um, you have textile mills up sort of where I live now in uh, sort of upper New England and in Massachusetts and eventually upstate New York, uh, and they're buying southern cotton. Um, but a huge chunk is going to sort of um, to England, right, to, to sort of the Midlands of England. Uh, and those uh, those massive blooms in the sort of British textile industries, uh, those are being run on cotton produced by uh, slaves in the Americans. So, so the podcast, we've talked a lot about the Industrial Revolution and uh, described a lot of times the, the 19th century industrial British skyline of coal-powered, uh, uh, smoky factories. And so what, what you're telling me is that a lar- like those factories are not only running on coal, they're running on slave-produced cotton from the South. Yes, it's, as well, especially early on. Yes. I mean, things obviously change a little bit by the time we get towards the second half of the 19th century, uh, but certainly for the first half of the 19th century and almost all the way up to 1900, that's that's really the case. Uh, the, this, this, this Southern cotton-oriented economy that's shipping out lots of cotton over to Britain, um, that's deeply connected with the Atlantic world. Um, we're, in your book, you describe white Southerners being kind of 
ambivalent is too soft a word about this Atlantic world, scared of this, of this Atlantic world. What were, what were they scared of? What were they afraid about? Yeah. So, so many Southerners find themselves torn. And this is, I'm following a phrase from uh, Robin Blackburn. Uh, they were torn between greed and fear. Um, the, the same Atlantic world that offered white Southern elites uh, economic prosperity, right? And that's selling their cotton on the international market and making a fair amount of money doing so. Uh, that those same Atlantic currents that that takes their ships and their goods out of the South also have the capacity to to import sort of these dangerous maladies uh, 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 of ideology, right? Um, so, uh, yeah. So, like, uh, as anti-slavery, for example, uh, explodes in the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution, uh, as abolition becomes a much more um, accepted political position in Great Britain and the Northern United States. Uh, white Southerners consider themselves or see themselves as sort of under siege, right? And there's not a whole lot they can do about it because or there's, there's, they're limited in what, and how they can react because, you know, if they just close down completely, if they just build a, a, a sort of border wall on their port cities, then they've crushed themselves economically. Um, but if they allow for mm-hmm. un, unregulated, unchecked free enterprise, they're terrified that these dangerous ideas of black liberation, of abolitionism, are going to penetrate uh, their slave society uh, and and creates the, and wreak havoc, right? And, and sort of uh, foment slave rebellion and upend uh, the social order, the very social order again that um, um, leads them to their to their wealth. So let's let's just I, I want to dig in a little bit to that story of Atlantic uh, uh, abolition. You mentioned two things. You mentioned uh, the Haitian Revolution. And I'd like to know, you know, around when that is and what it means for these people. And then you mentioned uh, uh, this this story of abolition in Britain. I, I vaguely know about that. I, I should because I'm a British historian, but I don't know enough about it. I know that there were some like anti-slave trade societies, and at some time in the 19th century, Britain banned the slave trade. And at another point, they banned slavery. But but can you flesh those those two moments out for right. me? Right. So so when historians historians often throw around jargon pretty freely and, and anticipate that people know what that means. But we've we've talked about the term age of revolution in, in the historical profession for a while. And for a long time, that meant sort of the era of the American and French revolutions. Um, uh, you know, black scholars have been talking about the third revolution that often gets overlooked. Um, for well over a century now, that's the Haitian Revolution, right? And I think more, uh, more and more over the past decade and a half, the Haitian Revolution has taken on um, epic proportions in in historiography, and and for good reason. So the Haitian Revolution um, is in the 1790s and, and into the early part of the 1800s, uh, and basically it is the largest slave rebellion in the history of the modern world. Hundreds of thousands of formerly enslaved people liberate themselves. Uh, burn their old plantations to the ground and basically evict the French colonial regime from the island of Saint-Domingue, and then they rename it Haiti. Uh, over the course of 13 years, uh, these uh, in- formerly enslaved people repel not only French military uh, might, but those of British and, and the Spanish as well. Um, and by 1803-1804, they've declared themselves sort of the, you know, the second republic in the, in the Atlantic world behind the United States. Um, this has obviously profound implications for Haitians themselves, but it has reverberating effects throughout the Atlantic world, uh, especially when you consider the proximity of Haiti to the southern United States, uh, and especially considering that the southern United States are expanding their slave regime at the exact same time 
uh, that the Haitian rebels have declared independence. So you have the emergence of this black republic using ideas that are coming out of the age revolution, things like equality and liberty and natural rights. Uh, and this is happening at the exact same time that Southerners are moving westward from sort of the sea, Atlantic seaboard states into places like what would become Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, and it's slave labor that is really doing the work to make those things, those places lucrative. So you have an expanding slave regime in the United States at the exact same time that you have a sort of exploding black liberation movement in the Caribbean. And this is where that that frustration, that, and I think you're right, ambivalence is, is too light of a word, but this sort of like friction between white Southerners greed and their fear really comes from. Right, and I, I imagine it's 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 it, it might even be the, the revolutionary generation of Southerners who are experiencing this friction. That it's the same, you know. It, there's some overlap between the people who participated in the revolutionary struggle against Great Britain, who 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 use that language of equality, of rights, of liberty for themselves, um, who are then seeing that language uh, being ported. Uh, to a situation that struck them as 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 deeply dangerous to their own livelihood. It, that's exactly right. Um, it, and and we see some of this in sort of the historiography of the American Revolution, where revolutionary leaders, depending on where you're at, are either you know emphatically behind the idea of African Americans joining the fight and creating this this new nation, you know, conceived in liberty, right? But you also have a, a huge number of um, you know, white Americans um, who are, you know, fighting against the British and are terrified uh, that black people will claim liberty. Right. Uh, this is sort of the, the, the central dilemma. This is the central sort of debate about the 1619 project um, and, and sort of the hoopla that's been uh, sort of all over. Um, well, at least for historians all over the news for for the past I don't even know. Time doesn't make much sense in this era of quarantine, but for it seems like. For years, right. Yeah. It started before quarantine and it's continuing. That's right, all that I know. Four times to the now times, right? And, and that's the debate about whether to start the 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 story of America uh, at 1619, which marks the 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 moment when the first black slaves were brought to North America, rather than 1776, when we usually start the story of America. Right. Exactly. Uh, and and so I think the Haitian Revolution is even more poignant in the way that it. Um, reveals the degree to which many white Americans, when they were professing ideals of natural rights and equality and, and, and sort of liberty for all, that they really didn't mean what they said or they didn't understand the implications of what they were saying. Um, and, and Haiti, I think, revealed in, in glaring terms what that world might look like. And so we see massive backtracking. In, in, in the South by the 1840s, you have Many uh, a Southern um, ideologue claiming that Jefferson was wrong, that the Declaration of Independence was incorrect. Uh, and I think a large uh, – uh, one of the reasons for that, one of the causes of that uh, is sort of the Haitian Revolution and sort of the, the reverberations of, of slave rebellion that happened after Haiti. I mean, Haiti is just the first shot or, or not even the first, but a huge shot. But there are um, you know, massive slave rebellions after that throughout the Caribbean and throughout the United States South. And so our, our Southerners, white Southerners, uh, often uh, pinpointed the origins for slave unrest on sort of this, um, this Haitian example. Oh, I, 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 so the, the, the story of the Haitian Revolution was, was showed that uh, enslaved people could use the language of rights, could use the language of liberty and, 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 and overturn the, the, the current order. Let's talk a little bit about the other source of anxiety, Great Britain, um, 
Tell me a bit about what people were afraid about Great Britain, because clearly the British economy required slave-produced cotton. So why were the, the Southerners worried about, about British people and you know doing something about slavery in the South? Uh, because Great Britain abolishes slavery, um, or they passed the Act of Abolition in the early 1830s, and by the end of that decade, um, chattel slavery, right, the, the idea of an enslaved person, that, that concept legally is gone. Um, so, so Great Britain, in some ways, at least in terms of sort of the, you know, the European empires in the United States, Great Britain is, is sort of leading the way. For a long time, Great Britain sort of celebrated itself as sort of the first empire to abolish slavery, sort of completely ignoring the fact of what, what Haiti did, you know, 40 years earlier. Uh, but Great Britain is, is, in, is understood at the time, especially by white Southerners, to be a nation dedicated to abolitionist principles. Um, so again, the, the same sort of um, ambivalence, and again, that's not exactly the right word, but that same sort of friction that white Southerners have uh, about the Atlantic, it, it's get projected onto Great Britain as well, because they are at once consuming Southern cotton, but at the same time, they're also, um, they, they are um, at least pronouncing dedication to an ideal of abolitionism. And, and, and so Great Britain becomes sort of a stand and a proxy for this sort of this dual threat, um, but also boon of the Atlantic world that, that white Southerners are envisioning. And, and this threat in your story becomes, you know, really embodied in the persons of black seamen, of black men and women who work on vessels in the Atlantic world, particularly vessels uh, that are owned by people in the British Empire. Tell me what the response was to, to these Negro seamen. Yeah, so that's that's a that's a great question, and and I think to preface that, I think it's important to remember that again, a lot of times when we think of early American history or American history at all, the weight of American exceptionalism tends to to narrow our focus, and so we always think that Americans are always thinking and talking about other Americans, uh, and they're not sort of thinking in more cosmopolitan terms. Um, the United States was watching what was going on throughout the rest of the world. White Southerners and white Northerners uh, in the United States were watching very closely what was going on with Haiti and, and sugar production after the Haitian Revolution. Uh, they were watching what happened in Jamaica in particular after British abolition in the 1830s. They wanted to see what would happen in a post-emancipation society. So abolitionists were looking at this sort of signs that um, good things would happen after abolition, right? And white Southerners were looking for anything that they could point to to say, look at the imminent collapse of the economy of society when you eliminate slavery. Uh, so Americans were, were very much paying attention to what was going on in the Atlantic world, but they weren't just reading those events as like a text or a book. Um, there were real people involved, right? The, the United States was connected to these areas through people and through ships and through material culture. Yeah. It wasn't just that they were like watching it on the news or reading about it in the newspapers. It was that like their lives were deeply in, entwined with the lives of people in the Atlantic. I think about these these slave owners who are who are making cotton for the Atlantic economy. They would have to pay attention to the British economy, to the price of cotton, to the demands of British industrialists, to you know, to all those sorts of things to make their business run. So it wasn't just that it was a hobby of theirs. It was it was it was necessary for their economic survival. Absolutely. And even and even beyond that, especially in urban port cities, this again, this isn't just sort of reading what's going on on sort of the cotton exchange in London or what's going on in sort of the nascent New York Stock Exchange. It was the people that are arriving in boats 
are are people that are not that, that are live they're little, literally living embodiments of these different ideas and these different frictions. And so, uh, black sailors in particular become lightning rods um, for Southern fears of uh, potential slave unrest and slave insurrection. Um, so, so if Great Britain is sort of this this paragon, at least in the white Southern mind, of abolitionism. Um, when British vessels arrive with black sailors on board, that projection of, uh, uh, manifests itself in sort of anti-black sailor animus. There's this belief uh, that black sailors carry with them, and this is where the, the, the title of the book comes from, that they carry with them the moral contagion of liberty. And if these black sailors who have been sort of imbibed with these ideas of liberty and equality and abolitionism, if they were able to circulate with local enslaved populations, they would infect them with liberty. And then there would, you'd have a, a, a pandemic of, of slave insurrection. And just as a side note, um, the, that phraseology of moral contagion and pandemic, I think, was a lot more catchy before, uh, before the last year. Now it feels a little bit weird saying those terms out loud. But if, if nothing else, I think a little bit of insight into how paranoid white Southerners were when it came to the introduction of these dangerous ideas. I, I think that's, it's such a, a, a deep metaphor. I just want to linger over it a little bit and un, unpack it. So the idea is like, look, the South is healthy. It, it, it is, it is a, a properly functioning society. The whites are happy. The black slaves are happy. The problem is from outside. The problem is that is that people get this moral contagion of liberty, which I, I guess you could just catch by looking at a free Negro seaman. Is that the idea? Like just just by the presence of free black people from this 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 Atlantic world in the streets of a place like Charlton, that was a threat to the established order. That was that was a contagion that could that could uh, bring this disease of liberty to the to, to the to the body politic. Yeah, I think there were lots of ways in which white Southerners were convinced that black sailors could undermine the, the, the Southern racial order. One, um, they were convinced that they carried these ideologies and in particular pamphlets um, and, and sort of anti-slavery tracts and that they would disperse them um, sort of all at once when they arrived in port. Um, and, and, and so at, in the same time that you see Southern states sort of banning the arrival of free black sailors, they're also banning the arrival of what they called incendiary pamphlets. So abolitionist hmm. literature. So that's one way that black sailors are seen as sort of like um, importing this malady uh, of, of sort of black equality. Uh, but I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that it wasn't just sort of what they might say or what they might transmit in terms of pamphlets or literature. Their very existence was a, was a threat, right? Their very existence as a free, autonomous. And, and again, there's there's a there's an issue. In, from the white southern mind, it, it's not always logically consistent, right? Because sailors are not typically seen as the most free people in the world, right? I mean, they live in some under some pretty draconian employment situations, yeah. right? So it's, to call them free is not exactly the best term. I, I mean, the British Navy, it's it's the rum, it's rum in the lash. Like you, you can you get a lot of whipping if you're if you're on a if you're on a boat and you're trapped on a boat for for years at a time under draconian right. uh, uh, order. Right. But what these what these black sailors don't have is a constant interaction with local whites in which the the sort of the liturgy of race or the liturgy of hierarchy is sort of played out. Right. Mm. So, so free people of color uh, and slaves in urban areas in the south, um, they live in a, in a society where 
where racism is practiced every single day, where the, the hierarchy is reestablished in everyday quotidian sort of transactions. And, and for white Southerners, they, they're seeing black sailors coming in with their labor contracts and their protection underneath the flag of the sailors are riding in on um, that in some ways sort of sort of uh, it, it, they exist outside of the, that, that sort of local power relationship. And that's very frightening for a lot of white sailors. Uh, and so when they enact laws banning the arrival of free black sailors, they don't just pass laws to keep them, those black sailors, on their vessels out in port away from, from enslaved populations. They literally mandate in almost every one of the southern states that enact these laws, they mandate that, that free black sailors get taken off of their vessels and placed in jail. And again, if the, if the fear was simply that they would sort of say something, then why would you take them off of their vessel and put them in the middle of the city, right, where they're much more likely to interact with people? Yeah, like if it was if it was a quarantine, if it, if it was a contagious disease, you keep these sailors on their vessels. That's what quarantine means. It's the forty days the ships had to stay in the port without actually being docked to make sure that they did not have a disease. So if it were quarantine, you would have them stay on their vessel. But instead, you have to kind of take these 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 free black people and and perform what you call the liturgy of racism to unfree them to to imprison them. Um, to somehow undo their freedom. Right, exactly. To, to sort of perform that white above black. I'm actually sitting, Winthrop Jordan sitting sort of right on my desk, right? And his book from the 1960s sort of, uh, sort of grand, groundbreaking work is white over black. And it's literally that performance of white over black. So, so how, if, if you are threatened, if you as a white Southerner are threatened by a black sailor coming from an area where slavery is no longer existent, um, how do you impose um, the, the racial order on them. Well, um, you, you take them off of their ships where they have at least a modicum of liberty. Uh, most of them are put in chains. They're taken to a, a, a jail that is usually housing, um, to, you know, people, uh, free people of color, sometimes slaves who have committed crimes and are being housed there. Sometimes it's slaves just being housed until they're sold somewhere else. You are literally putting them into the localized system um, and, and, and institutions that specifically make white over black. Right. So in some ways, you're, you're integrating them into that local power dynamic. Hmm. And how did how did these these free Negro seamen, how did these free black seamen, how, how did they respond to being in prison? Were they, you know, were they, I, I can't imagine knowing British sailors, I can't imagine that they just sat in jail peacefully. Yeah. So this is one of the and this is the problems with doing one of the problems with doing social history and, and doing uh, maritime history, um, thinking about sort of your average sailor. Uh, many of them don't leave uh, a whole lot of records behind. Uh, so it's really challenging to sort of like, you know, tr sketch out a really sort of detailed composite of what's going on. Uh, but there are a number of examples um, um, in the historical record uh, that show that black sailors sort of respond in, in a lot of different ways. Um, some of them just went to jail, right? Uh, Jeff Bolster, uh, historian Jeff Bolster, talks about how for some black sailors, this was sort of a rite of passage, like going into Charleston or into New Orleans and sort of going through the hay, basically the equivalent of hazing, right? Um, that that was sort of a way for them to, to prove their masculine bravado. And of course, that's very important in the maritime culture to have this sort of this masculine bravado. Uh, so some just went to jail. Um, others uh, sued. Uh, they literally filed claims. Um, some relied on the, on the help of their captains. Um, some wrote letters to family. Some wrote letters to friends. Um, uh, British sailors often try to get in contact with, with the local British consul. 
Um, and you know, because of the uh, ex- because of the the long tentacles of the British state, um, British there were British officers in every single one of even the small port cities in the south. There was a British consul that was stationed there uh, pretty much year round. Uh, and and so there's literally an agent of the British state in Charleston, in New Orleans, in Wilmington, in all these places. And and so those British consuls end up acting as an intermediary. Uh, so black sailors respond in lots of different ways. Um, Sometimes they they make uh, interesting economic claims, right? Some of them are just interested in making sure they still get paid uh, while they're in jail, and so they'll sue and deduct wages. Um, so in a sort of uh, you know just economic calculus, um, but others made much more robust claims, uh, political claims, uh, legal claims that uh, because they are citizens, because they are rights bearing individuals, either of Great Britain or of the United States, uh, that these arbitrary laws were. Um, were violating um, the rights of citizenship. Yeah, one of, one of the interesting things about, about, about as part of your book is that you talk ab- ab- about the, how the Negro Seamen Act, uh, uh, the, the the response by by black people was often political, was often to do a lot of things that that, that we think of as political, as, as signing petitions. And the thing, my my dissertations on clubs and societies in the eighteenth century, so it's really interested to see that one of the big political actions that black people took was to make associations yeah um to make associations to to fight to 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 make their claims for for being equal citizens right so um so the exact same time that that white americans are forming associations and and sort of thinking about and 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 sort of exercising politics outdoors um african americans northern african americans are doing the same thing um and it shows the degree to which they are they are um Sort of completely intertwined into American political culture. They're separate, yet they're all the time. They're doing the same things. They're petitioning. They're creating associations. They are going to court. They are lobbying legislatures. They are um, doing their best to put economic pressure uh, to try to um, um, to try to force those people that are in power to make changes to protect members of their community. Um, so in some ways, they are sort of intertwined in American political culture, but in some ways, they're in the vanguard of American constitutional thought. And, and this is sort of one of the, the key parts of the book is that um, when we think about national citizenship nowadays, we think of largely rights, that, that, that if you are a citizen of the United States, there are certain rights that um, other places, but particularly our own governments, can't do to us, right? Um, but that concept yeah. of national citizenship is... Um, largely a manifestation of the 14th Amendment, which was ratified sort of in the 1860s after the Civil War. But African-American sailors 20, 30, 40 years before the 14th Amendment were making the same claims. They were basically saying, hey, I'm an American citizen. And because I'm an American citizen, if I travel, if I live in Philadelphia and I travel down to Charleston, if I'm an American citizen, I have a right to go into Charleston. I have a right to go into New Orleans. And any law, state law to the contrary, can't stand up to my rights claims. So, so these African-American sailors and, and some of the some of their um, allies were sort of positing this idea of citizenship as a very sort of powerful legal category that that prefaces what happens in the 1860s. So in some ways, you know, so the, on the one hand, yes, they're uh, uh, they're sort of integrated into American political culture in, in certain ways, but they're also on the cutting edge of constitutional thought. And, and in many ways, they are um, sort of vital precursors. Uh, to to the constitutional revolution that happens in the aftermath of the American Civil War. So let me let me just recap that to make sure that I know what, what you're saying. So before 
this idea of of having particular kinds of, of of civil rights by dint of your citizenship was actually ratified in law, was actually practiced in law in the United States. You're saying that one of the big vanguards of of making those kinds of arguments were black people, particularly black people who were defending their 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 ability uh, to move freely within the 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 Atlantic U.S. Right? That that before it was. Actually, you know, usually when we talk about uh, uh, th- these kind of rights, the big moment in the story is the ra- you know legal the ratification of, of of these particular amendments. But for you, you say the beginning is 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 instead in resistance to legal oppression by 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 black people in the Atlantic world. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, Martha Jones just wrote a fantastic book called Birthright Citizenship, right? Birthright Citizens, and and she's making a, a, a similar claim. Um, based on sort of bottom-up activism in Baltimore, that that because free people of color in Baltimore were born there, they had lived their lives there, they had become integrated into the society there, that they could make claims on the state that had to be honored. In some ways, this is a, a similar story. It's just a, a broader, uh, a, a broader sort of geographic scope, and I think a, probably a, a slightly smaller population, considering how many free people of color live in Baltimore. But it's a similar sort of process, right? Um, just because the Supreme Court says no. African-Americans are not citizens uh, and citizenship does not carry these sorts of powers doesn't mean that those arguments and those contests were not happening all the time, 30, 40 years before Dred Scott in 1857. So instead of seeing sort of constitutional law, sort of the courts dictating ABC, I see these contests as sort of I I see these sort of uh, ideas about citizenship as being sites of contest where different groups sort of debate about what citizenship as a legal category means. And, and when you look at it in, in sort of that particular way, um, the voices of African-American sailors and the people fighting on their behalf, man, they sound a whole lot like the radical Republicans of the 1860s. Uh, and, and so you know, that's what I mean by vanguard. That's what I mean, the sort of out in the cutting edge of, of things like birthright citizenship and the fact that citizens have rights uh, that they carry with them no matter where they go into the nation uh, and that the individual states can't deprive um, American citizens of, of due process and equal protection. Oh, so there's a part of the story that I'm 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 a little confused about, and that's like, so you tell the story of the Negro seamen fantastically, but I wonder were there other free blacks who were moving around and and or uh, around the U.S. and were their freedom of movement was was that constrained as well? Yes. So so two things. One, um, you have a massive number of black British sailors that are entering these port cities. And they, too, are making claims that because they are citizens of Great Britain, um, that they are protected by treaty rights with the United States that allows them to enter port cities. So that's happening, too. Uh, and, and some of the sources I use are actually uh, British sources that sort of, uh, you know, help lead the way to other sources inside the United States. Um, but the more I tried to research these laws against black sailors, the more and more I was convinced that this is part of a much larger program. It's not just the port cities of sort of the Atlantic and Gulf South. This is damn near a, a national border regulation program. And what I mean by that is that um, not just sort of North Carolina and South Carolina and Louisiana and Florida, but places like Arkansas, Texas, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Delaware, Oregon, all of these states passed laws that effectively bar the migration of free black people. Um, they actually call them immigration laws, which sort of doesn't really make sense with the way we describe immigration now as sort of being international migrants. 
But they applied that 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 phraseology, that that word immigrant. That was an appellation for not just international movement, but for interstate movement. Uh, and so places like Indiana and Illinois, <coughs> Missouri, um, not just places in the South, they ban all black migration. So if you are coming in from out of state, um, you are liable to be uh, arrested, uh, fined. Uh, sometimes your labor would be sold to you, paid off your court fees. And in some uh, jurisdictions, you would be um, you'd be deported. And in certain instances, you could potentially be enslaved, obviously not in Indiana or Illinois, but in some of the southern states. Wait, I just I just want to linger over that. My jaw is dropping at this, that, that, that in a ton of states before the Civil War, there were laws barring the migration of, of, of free black people and sometimes all black people. And if you violated them. One of the punishments was that your your labor could be sold for to pay off your court fees, or you could be enslaved forever. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. The enslavement uh, was more of a feature of certain uh, repeat offenders in southern states. But yeah, so there's the story of of Nelson. He's a he's a a free black man. He goes from Missouri into Illinois in the midst of the Civil War. In Missouri, again, is sort of a absolute absolute bloodbath in the opening years of the Civil War. Uh, so he could be a refugee. Um, it's, it's tough to tell from the sources. But he goes into to Illinois, uh, and he basically gets arrested for entering the state illegally, for being an illegal immigrant. Um, and uh, he gets sentenced um, to pay a fine. He can't afford it. And so he basically goes up for auction. And whoever is willing to pay the fine for the shortest amount of time uh, is able to procure his services for that period of time in exchange for paying off his court fees. So this is sort of like, you know, this is the... Uh, what you see after the war um, in places in the Deep South. I mean, this is sort of like, um, you know, prison labor, right? Um, and so Nelson ends up working for this guy for, for over a year and a half. Uh, and eventually he gets pardoned. Um, but there are plenty of other instances where where people are being, you know, where black people are being sentenced in places like Illinois, in Indiana, uh, in Missouri, where they're being sentenced, um, you know, f- with fines, and then they end up, uh, losing their liberty and having to work off those debts, um, looking a lot more like slaves than anything else. I, I can't help but f- but 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 see some parallels to what's happening today. Um, like it, it, one of the the, the the less recognized debates that's happening right now in American politics, I think, is about who deserves to be part of the political nation, especially on the right. Um, and I've seen it. In the past couple weeks, discussions of the Portland protesters and discussions of of undocumented immigrants. Um, a lot of people on the right uh, who are defending the um, indiscriminate use of force by the federal government against Portland protesters say, "Look, they're rioters. They're animals. They deserve to be attacked." And that's like this move that denies them of their, you know, role in the political nation. They're not real citizens. You can see like a little bit of this in 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 those dumb maps that you had in the 2016 elections of lots of red states making up the majority of the 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 geographic area of the US and some blue states. And you know, the right would say, well look, we, we make up more of the land. Um, denying the the political rights of, of of liberals, and and you see this especially in in discussions of of undocumented labor. Like right now, I'm a meat eater. I eat, I eat chicken and beef, and I'm I'm absolutely certain that that beef is 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 packed in a meat packing plant where a lot of undocumented laborers are working in horrible conditions, being ex- exposed to coronavirus. Uh, and they're we are able to be blind to their condition because they are not considered you know, 
people who have full political citizenship. And this seems like part what 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 you're talking about in the Negro Seaman Acts and in these larger immigration laws seems to be a deeper history of that debate about who actually deserves political rights in the nation. Am I is this is this too much of a stretch? Am I going off on the deep end because I've been at home No, not not at all. No, not at all. And, and in so many ways, you're right. So like even with these with the sort of black immigration laws, right? So like Kentucky and, and Maryland passes black immigration laws where they don't allow any black people to move in. Um, but they grant exemptions to certain free black migrants to allow them to come in. The legislator literally they field a petition and they grant an exemption. And what happens are these these free black migrants then get documents. They get they get legislative exemptions that make them basically legal immigrants. And if they have that exemption, then they have rights that illegal free black migrants don't have, right? In places like Mississippi and Indiana, if you are an illegal black immigrant, then you don't have any right to property, no rights to property, right? So so a black person that was born in Ohio who moves to Indiana, and I bring up those two states in particular because that's sort of the way that my family way back when sort of moved across the United States as part of, you know, that loaded term manifest destiny, right? When they do this, they lose all rights to their own personal property. There are stories of, of marriages being annulled, right? So the contracts are being annulled, not just economic contracts, but marital contracts are being annulled because black migrants that don't have these documents don't have rights um, that, that white communities have to respect. So I think it's not a stretch. I think it's it is the the, the echoes are deafening from the antebellum period and what's going on now. Um, and I think you can even draw a lot a lot more parallels. I mean, even the idea of moral contagion. I mean, I've I've read plenty in the news that says that the the issues going on in Portland are not from Portland yeah. natives. It's outside agitators. It's uh, Antifa operatives. It's the it's the international Soros cabal. And so it's this idea that it's it's outside dangerous people that are coming into communities and infiltrating it. It's the same jargon that was used during the civil rights movement, uh, that, that MLK is not from Birmingham, right? Um, he's an outside agitator. I mean, this 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 history goes way, way back. And and the laws against black sailors are just sort of one one act in this multi-act play of of denying uh, political personality, legal personality to people who who ought to have it, and, and the move that your that your book reveals is, is, I think, really important to to underline that that we're that this dissent is presented as moral contagion, as something coming in from outsiders, because the idea is without our society is perfect, everything's okay. It's only the fact that, that that there's some sort of disease of discontentment that can only come from outside, right? Yeah, and that's. Um, and, and, and again, there's there's it, I mean, it's rooted in some ways in, in racism and xenophobia, but racism and xenophobia don't really make sense. Uh, moral contagion doesn't make sense if the contagion hasn't already entered your, your society. It's a way for explaining what's already domestically yeah. happening. Right. So when the United States closes its doors to communists and anarchists from Eastern and Southern Europe at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, they are blaming labor unrest right, on dangerous outsiders and completely papering over homegrown economic descent in the United States. When these white Southerners in the era of black, of the Negro Seaman Acts, when they pass these black, when they pass these laws, they're saying that there is no domestic unrest, right? Our society is is perfect. It's fine. And what it does is not only does it sort of displace, um, you know, know, on the one hand, it's sort of like, it champions this uh, this idea of their society that doesn't exist, 
but it also papers over the homegrown roots of, of disaffection, right? It, it, it takes the political claims of the people that live with you, and it says that those don't exist, right? That you can't acknowledge that there is conflict in your own society. And that's, I think, one of the hearts, one of the sort of central claims of the book is that if you continue to externalize uh, or the very act of externalizing the dangers that face your society, you're almost always papering over internal division. And there's a political project in doing that. There's a reason why that's happening. Uh, and largely it's political, uh, internal political dynamics. Great. Well, thank, thank you very much for joining us today, uh, Michael. Um, I have to thank uh, all the people who made this podcast happen. Thank you to Jonathan Lear for our music. And thank you to Duncan Barton for our image. Thank you for listening. Um, you can always find show notes uh, and other information at the website at historian.live. I have a newsletter now. Um, if you uh, don't already get too many newsletters, where uh, I will send links to latest episodes and to my writing as it comes out and gets published. I have a review of uh, Sandra Boynton's board book, um, Blue Hat, Green Hat, which is my favorite board book of all time out in the Journal of History of Ideas blog, which you can find if you subscribe to the newsletter. Um, thank you for sharing the show. If you share it, uh, share it especially with in-laws. Uh, in-laws love the show. I will be back next week um, where I will be talking about object lessons um, with Professor Sarah Ann Carter. Um, thank you again, Michael, for joining us. <laughs>